I've been praying a lot about this passage in my, my sermon this week, and I think as far as for the church, I'm just praying you're encouraged, um, being reminded of God's faithfulness as we come to the New Testament, and as my brothers have already mentioned, all of God's promises, his saving promises coming to a head, coming to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, how encouraging is that? And I've also been praying for those who don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Maybe you balk at Scripture, uh, you, you see this book is outdated, it's archaic, the language, uh, no relevance for my life. What I hope and pray that you'll see this morning, and if you continue to come back, is that the hope of the believer is built on a rock-solid foundation. Um, when, when you look at this movement in Scripture from promise to fulfillment, you can't help but say God is faithful. This book is trustworthy. The king proclaimed is trustworthy. And so I pray that you would see that by God's grace this morning and over the next few weeks. Um, maybe you're disappointed that you didn't hear all the names in the genealogy. <laughs> maybe that was grace, brother. Um, you know, I, I appreciate the genealogy. I had a professor in seminary. She did her Ph.D. at Cambridge University on the genealogies of the Old Testament. It's the word Toledoth. If anyone can make genealogies exciting, it was, uh, it was her. But uh, we will talk about the significance of the genealogy, but I'm not going to read all the names. Um, not because they're not worth reading, more because of time. The title of my sermon is Jesus the Savior King. The big idea, straight from the text, from verse 1, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. I love apologetics. I've been studying apologetics for a number of years now. I've taken classes on apologetics. I, I read on apologetics, and if you're like, what does that even mean? Are, are you like, you apologize a lot? Yeah, if you're a husband, you find that you do that as a good husband. You're willing to do that, you should. But apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, or apologia, if you want to pronounce it that way, and it refers to a defense. A defense. So what are we defending as Christians? We're defending truth. We're defending the Christian worldview. Now, I've always had a love relationship with the Gospels. Uh, one of the master's degrees that I did was in the New Testament, and I focused heavily on the Gospels. I love the Gospels. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of, of Jesus all four Gospels, if you spent any amount of time in the Gospels, all four Gospels are apologetic in nature, meaning that they provide a clear defense of the Christian faith, and yet none more so than Matthew. Matthew. Matthew's Gospel is aimed at his fellow Jews. In writing, okay, in writing this Gospel, Matthew seeks to persuade them of the truth that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the promised King to bring salvation to all nations. And again, this is the driving impetus of Scripture, namely this beautiful movement from promise to fulfillment. And what this shows us, if you read Scripture and you find yourself being kind of tossed in this beautiful rhythm, promise, fulfillment, promise fulfillment, what this shows us is that God is faithful and his word is trustworthy. 
Now, Matthew uses a particular phrase throughout his gospel to demonstrate God's faithfulness to his saving promises. He's saying all of God's promises are coming to fruition through his son, Jesus Christ. And here's the phrase. Here's three examples where it's used. Matthew 1.22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew 2.15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Two verses later, Matthew 2.17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. I don't know if you were listening earlier when Pastor Aaron read verse 1. But Matthew's gospel begins on an explosive note. He brings to light two great, and I would argue the two greatest covenant promises in Scripture, his promises to Abraham and David. And he locates unabashedly, very boldly, their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And he does this right out of the gate. (laughs) There's nothing subtle about Matthew's claims. And we're going to get there, but not yet. I have two points this morning, but before we look at these two points, I want to briefly discuss the significance of Matthew's genealogy, these lists of names. Because it's easy to, you know, maybe during Christmas you spend most of your time in Matthew or Luke because they include the birth narratives, and you start with Matthew, like, oh, here we go. All these names I can't pronounce. And maybe it's defeating. But I want to talk about the significance of these names quickly. What's the purpose of all these names in these three divisions? If you look at your New Testament, if you look at Matthew 1, you're going to see three paragraph breaks. First and most obvious is the significance of Jesus' lineage. Matthew traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to two great seed or offspring promises, God's promises to Abraham and to David. Does that make sense? So when I say seed, I'm referring to offspring. Now, the first division traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham, thus supporting the claim that Jesus is, in fact, the son of of Abraham. The second division traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to David, thus supporting the claim that Jesus is also the son of Son of David. But then we come to the third division where Matthew traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to the Babylonian exile. And you're maybe wondering, what does that even mean? Well, God promised blessing for Israel's obedience. He promised curses for their disobedience. He basically said, hey guys, listen, here's my word, here's my covenant, keep it. If you do, hey, you're going to have this great promised land, I'll be with you, I'll take care of you. Your, your, your flocks will produce, the ground will produce, I'll, I'll protect you from enemies, but if you disobey me, if you reject me as your king, I'm going to kick you out of the promised land, much like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and I'm going to raise up foreign armies that are going to attack you and basically remove you from the promised land. And guess what happened? The latter. <laughs> First in 722 B.C. with the Assyrians, and then later in 586 B.C. with the Babylonians. So why draw attention? Why does Matthew draw attention to this, this great period of woe 
curse, punishment, and wrath for Israel. Because, oh, because Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the great reversal of exile, the solution to Israel's separation and God's gracious means to their healing and restoration. And all God's people said, amen, right? The, the coming of Jesus marks the end of exile. The coming of Jesus means the coming of salvation. So what are we meant to take away from our passage? Again, two points. Number one, if you're following along, Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the promised king. Now, rather than sticking to the chronological order and beginning with Abraham, I want us to follow the order laid out for us by Matthew. Matthew begins with who? With David, right? Jesus is the son of David. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now, before we examine God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, I want us to focus our attention on the title Christ. Because he begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Christ is from the Greek word Christos, which literally means anointed one, and comes from the Hebrew word for Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah. But in calling Jesus, again, it's not his last name. I think we know that by now. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. But in calling Jesus Christ or Messiah or anointed one, what is being said of him? What is this title? And if you read the New Testament, Jesus is often called Jesus or the Christ or Jesus Christ. So it's an important title, but what does it assume about Jesus? What image does the anointed one bring to mind? Now, to answer this question, let's go back to 1 Samuel 16. Here, God establishes David as king over Israel. And I want us to read two verses. So 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, and then we're going to fast forward to verse 13. Now, who was the first king that God established over Israel? It was Saul. And how did Saul do? Not very well. Okay, so keep that in mind. The Lord said to Samuel, Samuel was a prophet, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Again, God says, I have provided for myself a king. All right, now we go to verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him, who's him here, David, in the midst of his brothers. Here it is. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So, Again, what does Christ mean? Anointed one. Who's anointed here? David. So, again, this image was used of, 
to recognize what type of leader? A, a king. Okay, so through anointing with oil and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, David is here being recognized as God's king. The king provided by the Lord to lead, guide, and fight for his people. All right. If you cornered me and said, Chris, give me your favorite Old Testament book, I'd say, ah, ah, it's hard, right? But you got to name one. I'd say it's a tie between Exodus and Isaiah. And if you really turned it, I'd, ah, I'd probably say Isaiah or Isaiah. How are we going to pronounce it? Do you know Isaiah describes another anointed one, the Messiah to come? What will he do? So I want to spend some time in Isaiah. I, I love Isaiah. But Isaiah talks about this anointed one to come, who is the Messiah. And how does Isaiah describe him? We'll start with Isaiah 42, 1-4. Isaiah 42, 1-4. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Okay, so let's go back to 1 Samuel 16. When was David recognized to be God's chosen king? Anointed with oil, and then the spirit rushed upon him. Divine recognition, David's the guy. David's my king. Isaiah, same thing, right? My chosen one. What does the text say? God says, I put my spirit upon him. Who's this going to be? This is going to be the king, the anointed one. And what's he going to do? Now listen carefully. He will bring forth justice to the nations. See if you can find a common theme. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What is the reoccurring theme here? It's that J word, justice. So, according to Isaiah 42, 1-4, he, the Messiah, will be recognized by the Spirit and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, the word justice here is mishpat. Everybody say mish, pat. Hebrew speakers. And it refers to divine order. Oh, okay, so take a pause, a little stretch break. Don't miss this. He's going to bring divine order. What that means is he's going to establish things in such a way that what it's going to look like God is king, ruling over his people. Divine order. God is going to rule over his people. That's divine order. That's the way things should look. The way things should look when God is king over a people, that's what it's going to be. That is what this king is going to do. Okay? The Messiah promised in Isaiah 42 will bring God's saving rule to the nations of the world. This is a promise of the gospel. Amen? God, he's going to establish God's saving rule over a people. All right, Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Again, what image is that? 
David, right? It's anointing language. This is the image of a king being anointed. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To bring good news, gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, deliverance to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Oh, okay. Again, the king to come will be recognized by the anointing of the the Holy Spirit. What will he do? Let's summarize. He will bring gospel good news to the poor. He'll bind up the brokenhearted. He'll deliver the captives. His coming will be an occasion for much joy, much praise, rescue, healing, and deliverance. And his ministry will be one of good news. All right. In Luke's gospel, this is like my favorite scene in Luke's gospel. Jesus walks into a synagogue. He stands up. He takes a scroll, turns to Isaiah 61, reads it. And this is what he says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh! Jesus is saying, I'm the guy. The, the king promised here in Isaiah 61, that's me. I was at Harvard in 2007, taking a class on Luke's gospel, and I wrote my paper on that passage in Luke 4. If you ever need help falling asleep, I'll send you that 20-page paper. Honestly, if you ever want to be encouraged, I'll send you that paper. I praise God for that whole two months I spent researching that passage. Um, isn't that cool, though? I mean, Jesus. Nothing subtle about Jesus. He walks in, stands up, takes the scroll, reads it. I'm the guy. <laughs> Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what we have to remember, I think we often forget this because we're not Jewish, okay, is that the Jews were familiar with these passages, this was their great hope and expectation. And finally, finally, these hopes were coming to fruition in Bethlehem with the birth of a child. Let's sum it up. In sum, as the Christ, Jesus would bring God's saving rule to the world. And this would be good news, and it would entail rescue and restoration. Now, one more thing worth noticing here. As you can tell, I'm passionate about the New Testament use of the Old Testament. I love it. I love this movement of promise and fulfillment because, again, what it tells us is God is faithful and his word is trustworthy. Everybody say, God is faithful. And his word is trustworthy. Amen? And that's what we're seeing here. But one more thing I want us to look at. Before we move into this second title, again, Christ, Son of David, Son of Abraham, we've parked on the first title, which is He's the Christ. Isaiah, in Isaiah 11, 
That was a 75-page paper. If you really are having a hard time sleeping, I'll send it to you. Isaiah, in Isaiah 11, connects the coming king, the anointed one, with the line of David. Very clear here. So again, the coming king, the anointed one, he's going to come from whose line? From David's line. And that's Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Now, I'll get there. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Who's daddy's Jesse? That's David's daddy. Who's your daddy? What would David say? Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What? How's he going to be recognized? By the, the spirit, the anointing. Again, he will be recognized as God's promised king by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But here, in Isaiah 11, he is identified as coming from the family of David. For Jesse was David's father. One more thing. <laughs> One more thing worth noticing before we get to God's covenant with David. This is amazing. I once was preaching to about 100 plus high school kids, and I said, I'm going to preach the whole book of Isaiah in two minutes. And I think they said it was two minutes and 37 seconds. I was close. But I want you to catch, this is really cool. This is going to encourage you. In Isaiah 11.5, now just pay attention here, don't miss this. In Isaiah 11.5, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king to come, is uniquely described as being clothed, like putting on clothes. He's going to be clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. Who was called to be righteous and faithful? God's people. Who was not righteous and faithful? God's people. But the king to come, he's going to be what? Okay, keep that in mind. He's going to be righteous and faithful. You got that right here? Okay, keep that there. In Isaiah 61, verse 3, which I've already read, the Messiah and his ministry will result in God's people being clothed with praise and no longer mourning or sadness. His coming, the king's coming, will result in joy for God's people. And then, here it is. Okay, come on. Follow me here because this is incredible. Here we come to verse 10 of Isaiah 61. Okay, so go back to Isaiah 11. Who is going to be clothed in righteousness and faithfulness? The king to come. Who should have been clothed in righteousness and faithfulness? God's people. But as a result of the coming king's ministry, God's people are going to be clothed in joy. No longer sadness. But here we come to verse 10 of Isaiah 61. Okay, get this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Okay. The Messiah to come, the King to come, who is completely righteous, will accomplish salvation for God's people and clothe them in righteousness and salvation. Here's the point. He will do what we cannot do. He will be what we cannot be. And he will earn for us 
what we cannot earn for ourselves. And this, for our benefit and our joy in His glory. If I could flip it, I would. But I'm not going to. But isn't that amazing? Oh. What will make God's people beautiful is the fact that they will be clothed with and represented by Jesus. Man! (laughs) All right. Let me summarize. Jesus is the long-awaited Christ, the Spirit-anointed King of promise, to bring God's saving rule to the nations, to bring salvation, healing, and restoration. And listen, if you just keep reading in Matthew, you're going to come to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. And at his baptism, something happens. Not only does the Father speak and say, this is my son, but the Holy Spirit comes down, anointing him, declaring him, confirming this is the long-awaited king. Amen? Man. All right, next, the title, Son of David. God's great promise to David is found in 2 Samuel 7. And it involves three things, if you're taking notes. A forever king, a forever kingdom, and rest from enemies. A forever king, a forever kingdom, and rest from enemies. Who's going to do this? Who's going to be this? I know. You know. I want to read two verses in 2 Samuel 7. Verse 11 and verse 16. Verse 11 says, And I will give you rest from your enemies. Isn't that a great promise? Rest from your enemies. And then verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. A forever king, a forever kingdom, and rest from enemies. Okay, so again... How does Matthew describe Jesus out the gate? Verse 1, he is the Christ, he's the son of David. What was God's promise to David? A forever king, a forever kingdom, and rest from enemies. But ironically enough, kingship was the downfall of Israel's history. Do you realize that? If you're familiar with Israel's history... It all started going downhill. Well, where do you start? I, you know, we're going to be back in Exodus very soon after the Christmas break, and we'll get to Exodus 32. Um, not a high point for Israel at all. But if you read in 1 Samuel 8, again, 60-page paper. <laughs> These are all passages that I studied and wrote on, and I'm, I'm excited about that. But in 1 Samuel 8, God's people make a request. They ask for a king. Why? Because they want to be like the other nations. And God tells Samuel, Samuel, they've not rejected you today. They've rejected me from being king over them. But you know what's interesting? Is that kingship was always a part of God's plan for his people. But here's the kicker. In order for kingship to work, who has to be king? God does. God has to be king. Here's the lesson. Life doesn't work unless God is your king. It doesn't. Try it. Please don't try it. Just believe me and don't believe me. Believe Scripture. Life does not work unless God is your king. 
Now, the first king was a calamity, and that was Saul. The second king did a pretty good job. He was closer, but he still fell far short. However, it was from this king's family that the promised king would come, the Messiah, the king above all kings. We know him as Jesus. Now, the promise of a king from David's line is re-emphasized throughout the Old Testament. If you read Ezekiel 34, oh, there's so much I could say here, but I don't have time. Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. God says, and I will set up over them, over Israel, over my people, one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Which means what? Believe that. Right? I said it, so believe that. All right, and then you get to Hosea 3.5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Again, Matthew's gospel begins on a high note, declaring Jesus to be the long-awaited king of promise from the line of David, the one to establish God's saving rule. Mishpat, don't forget that word. Provide rest from enemies and bring salvation to the nations. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the promised King. What this reveals is the faithfulness of God. God promised a forever King, and in Jesus the King has come. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, what else do we learn about Jesus in our passage? He's the Christ, He's the Son of David. He's the promised king. But then, what other title do we see? The first genealogy. His lineage goes all the way back to who? This guy had many sons. I'll give you a hint. Abraham. Come on. I thought the kids would say it. That was your chance, kids. Point number two. Jesus is God's promised savior of the world. He's the promised king. He's the promised savior put those together. He's the promised Savior King. Verse 1, the son of Abraham. Now, listen, context is important. Jesus is king, but context is queen. The background here is Genesis 12.3. So let me read that, and then I'm going to give you context. What comes before Genesis 12.3? Genesis 12.3, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, meaning your offspring. All, everybody say all. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let me give you context, 25 seconds. Don't time me, that's rude. You're probably, well don't say it, you're right, I shouldn't say it. Prior to God's promise to Abraham, what do we see? How's mankind doing? Not very good, Dave. I mean, very poor. We see the utter depravity of mankind. In Genesis 6-5, preceding the flood, God's destruction, His wrath, brought on the entire world. This is a worldwide flood. How are people described? Genesis 6-5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. 
great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Everybody say, we bad. And then we get to Genesis 11, and we see the Tower of Babel. Mankind's united rebellion and opposition against God. God said, spread out. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And mankind said, no, we're going to come together and make a name for ourselves. We're not really concerned about your name. We want to be great. And you're thinking, okay, here we go. But the rainbow, right? So it's not going to be another worldwide flood. But it was to this worldwide situation of despair, dejection, and defiance that the good news of promise came. What grace. God addressed worldwide rebellion with the promise of worldwide blessing. What do we call that? That's grace. That's grace. I mean, what did mankind deserve? Thoughts evil continually. Yes, they were judged. But then in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, mankind united in their defiance against God. And how does God respond? A promise of blessing. Are you kidding me? No. This is God's truth. And from Abraham's offspring would come the Savior of the world, the one to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the promised Savior to come. If you struggle with sharing the gospel, use Scripture, please. I want to to show you something. This is in your notes. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. This is the gospel according to the three great seed or offspring promises. You can use these passages to tell the gospel. The first is Genesis chapter 1. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What theologians have often called the proto-evangelium, which means first gospel in Latin. So what is Genesis 3.15? What has happened? Mankind has fallen. Adam and Eve have sinned. God said, don't eat, and they ate. Satan said, you can be like God, rendering God superfluous. And they said, okay. And that's alive and well in all of our hearts. Is true? But what did God promise? I will put enmity, which is another word for division, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I think a better rendering is he shall crush your head. Maybe today's language, he shall smoke your head. Just, ah! Right? Evil's going to be vanquished, amen? But it's going to come at a great cost. Victory through death. And then we get to Genesis 12, 3. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so from Eve, from her offspring, would come the Savior to crush Satan. And then from Abraham's offspring would come the one to bring Worldwide blessing. And then we get to 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Yes, this points to Solomon, but who's the greater Solomon? Solomon died. Solomon's wisdom was limited. Who's the greater Solomon? Who's the greater king? Who's the one that is the eternal king who has established an eternal kingdom? Jesus. 
from Eve to Abraham to David. Now, here's the question, and I thought this was just helpful. How is Jesus described in Matthew 1.1? The Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, but where's the mention of Eve? Where's the mention of Adam? I didn't hear anything, did you guys? We'll keep reading. Can I show you where? Even if you said no, I'd say, I'm going to show you anyway. Matthew 4. In Matthew 4, what happens in Matthew 4? Jesus is tempted. By who? Or by whom? By Satan. Now listen, in Matthew 4, Jesus, get ready for it, crushes. He crushes Satan with, with the word of God. And then at the cross, he will crush Satan again, removing all ground for accusation against the people of God who have trusted in him. And one day, Satan will be crushed forever and thrown into the lake of fire. Taken together, these three promises look ahead to the one who will crush Satan, rescue God's people, and establish God's saving rule over God's people. This is the one who came into the world 2,000 years ago. This is the one we celebrate at Christmas. And all God's people said, Amen. And let us not forget why he came. We get so enamored by the birth narrative that we forget, yeah, this baby's precious, but this baby came for a sole purpose. In order to crush Satan, in order to provide salvation and establish God's saving rule over his people, this Savior King had to, he had to die. The child born of a virgin came to lay down his life for sinners like you and me. Let me end with this. Hopefully, in your heart, it's welling up and you're just saying, yes, amen, God is faithful, his word is trustworthy. But the question remains, what do we do with Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17? What of application? Jesus is the promised king and savior of the world, the one who came to establish God's kingdom over a worldwide people, provide rest from enemies. So what do we do? Three things. Number one. This is in your notes. Jesus is Savior. Here's what you do. You run to him for salvation. Jesus is Savior. He is the Savior of the world. Again, there's no, there's no other option. I mean, Jesus is so clear about that, right? John 14 says, I'm the way. I'm not a way. There's no such thing as a, a religious buffet line where you can just kind of pick and choose. He is the way. He is the Savior. Run to him for salvation. And if you already have, proclaim him as Savior to the world. Amen? Only in Jesus can rest and rescue from the enemies of sin, death, and Satan be found. Number two, Jesus is king. That's so clear. He is king. Give him. Here's the application or the practice step. Give him your allegiance by coming under his word with his people. Amen? He's the Savior. So run to him for salvation if you have. Proclaim him to the world. The Savior's come. Number two, Jesus is king. Give him your what? Give him your allegiance by coming under his word 
with his people. And number three, God is faithful. I, hopefully that's been seen this morning in the scriptures. God is faithful. Here's the practice step. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him and his word. Jesus is Savior. Run to him for rescue and proclaim him to the world. Number two, Jesus is King. Give him your allegiance by coming under his word with his church, with his people. Number three, God is faithful. Trust him and trust his word. I love 2 Corinthians. It's the first book I taught through. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For all, everybody say all. All the promises of God find their yes in him. In who? Jesus. Don't, don't miss that. Don't look around. Listen. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Can we just look at the end of the story? You know, I feel like a kid right now wanting to peek at the Christmas presents under the tree. I just want to see what's to come. Can we do that now? Can we look at Revelation 21, 1-4? Because this is the fulfillment of everything. This is our hope. If you trust in Jesus, if Jesus is your Savior and King, this is your hope right now. Revelation 21, 1-4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, very important there, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to that voice, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, crying, right? Nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Here we have painted a picture, a very clear and beautiful picture of God as king over his people with complete rest from their enemies. This is the hope of the rescued, those who trust in Jesus. And it can be your hope as well. It can be your hope as well, amen? It can be your hope as well. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for salvation and do it today. Don't wait. You're either a friend of God or you're an enemy of God. In order to be a friend of God, you must trust in His Son, the Promised One, who came and laid down His life, taking the punishment for sin that we deserve at the cross. Yes, that baby came, but He came to die. And if you want salvation, if you want rest, if you want peace with God, if you want to move from enemy of God to friend of God, you must trust in Jesus. And, and the bad news is we've all sinned. We all deserve punishment. The good news is Christ took that punishment in our place, but only those who trust in him will benefit from his saving work. Amen? So trust in Jesus. Again, the message of the Bible, what is it? I said it earlier. It's that life only works if Jesus is king over your life. Life only works when God is king over your life. In fact, you will never know peace until you know Jesus as your king. And Jesus is the God King. Trust Him, follow Him, 
Give him your life. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I am in awe of your word. I pray that all of us this morning would be in awe of your word. So many grand promises made, specific promises made of a coming king, a coming savior, a coming rescuer. And in Jesus, Father, in your son, all these promises have come true. Your response to our evil, our rebellion, was promise. The promise of a Savior. Gospel. I pray that we'd be in awe and that we would respond appropriately by trusting in Jesus, treasuring Him as Savior and King, and proclaiming Him to the world around us. Father, may we be equipped by Your Spirit working through Your Word to deliver this good news to others, to tell them that the King and the Savior has come. His name is Jesus. And I pray, Father, that You would give us the boldness to not only tell that good news to others, but to call others to turn from their sin, to get off the throne, and to trust in Jesus as the true Savior and true King. To communicate to them that life only works when God is King. And God is King when we trust in Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.